Welcome to the Agarious Mammal Podcast. This is Chris, and this is two interviews in this episode. Two interviews I did with Sean Sukta from Pepper Data and Robert Reeves from Datical, kind of loosely around the future of big data, uh, how we're going to be deploying big data applications and building them and orchestrating them in the future. So sort of predictions for the big data world. I hope you enjoy and I'll speak to you next time. Well, my name is Robert Reeves. I'm the CTO and one of the co-founders at Datical. And what we do is we automate those changes to your databases that are needed for application deployment. So instead of creating a ticket and send that to a DBA, we're able to automate that process so that the same way that you deploy your application code, you can also deploy your database code. And I mean, this is a process that I remember with great pain. I used to work a lot with um, CMSs and CRMs that would put a lot of um, Mm -hmm. configuration in in MySQL, uh, mostly. And then we had Mm -hmm. all sorts of weird and wonderful ways to attempt to to do what you just described, which never really worked, to be fair. <laughs> so there was always some kind of problem. And if you thought solving a conflict in, in Git was hard, solving a conflict in some random config file was even harder. Um, and then various sort of solutions to this came along. I suppose things like Ruby with fixtures and uh, more modern versions of uh, some of the CMSs that I worked with did similar things. Mm-hmm. Um but so maybe just uh, explain a little bit behind the scenes without giving away your, your secret sauce. And now I know you're in Austin. And I guess you get secret barbecue sauce of um, yeah. <laughs> what you're actually doing behind the scenes. Are you uh, abstracting something similar into like a sort of Ruby and Rails styles fixtures or doing something clever? And does that also mean you could include... Uh, is it just including changes to the structure or can you make these changes to live systems around actual data that's stored as well? Well, that's, you know, it's, it's great that you bring up Ruby on Rails because that is where the genesis of the idea came from. Uh, when, you know, Ruby on Rails came out, that was amazing mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, the idea that I could write code and my database schema would be migrated automatically. I add a new attribute to an object. Well, that typically means a new column in mm-hmm. a table. And Ruby on Rails would take care of that. The only problem was you, you had to use Ruby on Rails. And, and that in a Java world, that's not, not going to happen. Sure. Uh, uh, and so um, Nathan Voxlin, who is our architect at Datical, was looking at this problem and said, hey, I really like that, and I want that for mm. Java. And his approach was to um, uh, create an object mm-hmm. model. Um, you know, when you look at SQL, there are bits of information in there. There are things like table names and columns and data types and stuff, but the syntax, eh, it really, it, it doesn't no. change. Uh, uh, there's, there's only one way to alter a table and add a column, all right? There, there's subtle variations, but on each platform, Oracle, MySQL, you name it, um, it has a set way of doing that. So what he did was put the data in an XML document. And from there, um, 
you know, look at the database and say, okay, what version are mm-hmm. you? And you are database says I'm version 22. Well, we need to get you to 24. So we're going to apply changes 23 and mm-hmm. 24. Great. Uh, I'm version 16. Well, we got to run a few more. And so what that allowed us to do was to migrate the database, to to evolve it. But it allowed us to go a step further. So what we can do now because of that object model is Datacle can do a forecast, show you what's going to change, but don't change it. You get a nice HTML report. And then we can also do rules. So things like you might have a corporate standard that says all tables must start with T underscore. Cool. We can enforce that. But we can also go um, even further. And you might have a rule that says all foreign keys, the columns that make up a foreign key must have a uh, index applied to them. That's that's just, you know, DBA 101. Um, but sometimes you forget. And so we make certain that if a rule, a standard is violated, it actually breaks the build. Yes, yeah, <laughs> so sure. yeah. you don't have a DBA looking over a developer's shoulder. The, the developer, you know, will actually break the build because they violated a standard like breaking a, a unit mm. test. And, um, you know, there's two ways to get a developer to, to, to focus on something, you know, uh, to get them out of their seat and move in. One is there's food in the break room and two, you broke the build <laughs> An email that says that. That's how you get them to work. And a big red light goes (laughs) off, yes. (laughs) Yeah, it's sirens. So, um, and and this process that you described with uh, Datical takes into uh, consideration production or or staging or whatever you define uh, data or or is it still kind of around the more the the skeleton of an application? Very much the schema. Uh, We don't focus on the data. We certainly can do that. So uh, a lot of applications have metadata. So they might in the database store the location of the email server to, to send notices. All right. So the SMTP server might be different from dev, QA, and production. Uh, you might have a different Google Maps API yeah, key exactly. and you store that in the yeah. database. All right. So we can manage that. No problem. And so and and say, all right, in, in dev, it's different from test, it's different from prod. But we really focus on that schema migration. That is seems to be the biggest blocker for large companies right now. Uh, they have uh, what I call a... Uh, uh, macro services mm-hmm. architecture. <laughs> These large monolithic apps yeah. that all talk to each other and they're all dependent. Yeah. And uh, they got a lot of problems with updating yeah. and they're just throwing bodies at the problem right now. And frankly, that is just killing our DBAs and frustrating our developers. It's just not working. So you created your own buzzword there, but just to uh, sort of throw in the one that I think you were spoofing. Um, so is this with an effort to try and encourage and push some of these uh, sorts of companies and teams into something that's more microservices based in the long run? You know, this thinking about this separation of uh, concerns. I mean, can you can you change with them um, and change uh, the way that they use Datacall with them if they do become more separated from each other? Every company that uses Datacall wants 
uh, is planning on moving to microservices. (laughs) The companies that are not um, are going to go the way of Sears and Kmart. (laughs) Uh, it's, if, if you look, Mark Andreessen said mm-hmm. it, not me, he said software yeah, will eat the yeah. world. And it follows that, you know, the companies that make the best software that have better engagement with mm-hmm. their customers, um, are going to mm-hmm. succeed. The ones that write crappy software are going to mm-hmm. fail. And so right now there's this decades of, of legacy app infrastructure that companies are trying to uh, either leverage or f- get rid of, but they can't because like 95% of their revenue goes through these yeah. apps. So what can they do to speed um, improvements to these apps while they're working on that new, that replatforming? How, how do they improve the plane as, it tax, as it's taxing down the runway? And for a lot of these companies uh, struggling with this policy that we must engage a DBA to manually review a SQL mm. script, um, that's just not working. So let, you, you talked a little bit about the, the workflow that um, DBAs and uh, developers, when they're trying to make changes, go through. Just describe that a little bit to me, a little bit more to me. So um, I guess either... Well, who would make who would make the first change, or is the answer to that anybody? <laughs> well, what what we suggest, um, and and that's in all yeah. caps, suggest <laughs> is uh, we 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 challenge our customers to adopt decentralized yeah, data management. Sure. We need to have the development team in charge of authoring these okay. changes. Yep. Uh, we call them change yep. sets. Yep. And D- DBAs need to move into a more senatorial role, <laughs> uh, like advising consent yeah. on, on, you know, nominees, you know, uh, uh, that that's where they succeed, um, where, where they will do more or provide more value for the company instead of being a mm. gate to go through, they need to be coaching, uh, and helping, developers understand why these rules are in place instead of enforcing them instead of being a line judge they need to be a coach Mm -hmm. and and also they get to do other cool things like you know companies that have adopted datical and no longer have dbas involved in the uh actual push of the change are able to do things like tackle that cloud migration yep. uh, for their Pulse. databases. They're Switching able to, to figure out <laughs> exactly. Or how do we shard off this yeah. monolithic database into component databases, yeah. smaller pieces that align with the microservices. That's where we need our skilled data professionals at not handling tickets like they're running a help mm-hmm. desk. That's just mm-hmm. rude. <laughs> and, um, or maybe uh, I can give you a new, uh, a sort of new uh, slogan to use. Instead of database administrators, they become database ambassadors. Oh yes, <laughs> yes. I don't know. Um, from the, from the developer side, I mean, on your product page, especially the uh, database code packager, you use a lot of terms that developers will be familiar with uh, from version control of code. Mm-hmm. How mm-hmm. how similar does this process look? Uh, to something like um, GitHub or GitLab or SVN, if they're still there, or Mercurial, you know, those sorts of systems, and they're used to seeing mm-hmm. 
uh, merge requests uh, and pull requests and how they look like a, a diff. How similar is this? I guess how similar is the is the process to developers and or um, how much does it fit into their kind of existing workflows? Well, sure. I mean, the, the first of all, we don't provide. Uh, a source code control no, system. Sure. I, I think I think it's a bad move for any company to say, "Oh, I have this tool, and you have to use my walled garden yeah. Yeah. version control yeah. system." Uh, it's that's not cool. Um, what we do is we leverage Git, Subversion, whatever source code control um, uh, uh, system you want to yeah. use. All right, doesn't matter on prem, hosted. We don't care. All we want to see is our developers that are using Datacle. Just check in the SQL script. Okay. Just check it in. You're adding a column. You know, there's certainly ways we can help create those scripts for you. But at the end of the day, you are going to check in a SQL script and Danical will create a immutable artifact that can move from one environment to the next, just like your compiled Java code or .NET or, or whatever you're you're creating. You're with your application, your compiled code, you're creating some kind of artifact. Well, we create a database artifact that you can deploy on any environment and it will catch it up. Is it a database that hasn't been touched in a few months? We'll catch it up. Is it a brand new Amazon RDS instance? Sure. We'll roll out the latest and greatest schema on there and also schema and also put the metadata necessary for that app to run. Um, It all starts with the developers uh, prescriptively saying, "I want you to make this change," mm-hmm. and we take it from there. And but and this uh, this could sit on top of existing uh, version control systems, or A- absolutely, it, it is. It, it is just the height of arrogance to go into somebody's house and start rearranging the furniture. <laughs> um, you know, when we when we are invited into somebody's house, into somebody's business, it is imperative that we work with what they have today. So we work with any okay. source code control system. We work with any application release automation okay. stuff they have. Like, you name it, we'll work cool. with it. Okay. And uh, and but then the, the your magic is then in in your system, I guess. So it feeds off of these uh, existing systems. But then to to offer the datacore magic, they then have to go to an additional dashboard or, or whatever, which, which is not a huge problem. But you know, <laughs> just, just just oh sure, it's yeah. just in a browser. Yeah. We can also um, a lot of our customers that might use like uh, ARA like Zebia mm-hmm. Labs. Okay, they will not really see datacore. They'll see a step that says, you know, deploy right. the database yeah. and that's datical there, but, but they don't care. It's just, it's just happening. It's like, um, you know, what Asimov said, you know, uh, all what was sufficiently advanced, uh, uh, technology looks like magic at some point. Um, and that's what we do. We just make it happen so people can move on and, and focus on tasks that really move the business forward, not updating a database. It's nobody's going to buy something from a company and say, wow, they're really good at managing their database. Not anymore. Maybe in the past, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you uh, were interested in scheduling this call. I mean, we've already talked about some some things that to, to some people probably already sound, well, as you just said, fairly magical um, mm-hmm. and fairly different ways of working. But uh, you said you were interested in, uh, commenting or discussing on 
how Datical can and, and I guess will help with future trends. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you see as future trends for databases and database deployments and I guess the, the role of databases? What are, your, what are your trends that you foresee? Well, I mean, we certainly see um, a breakdown of silos based on personal mm-hmm. experience. You know, this idea that like, oh, I'm a Java mm-hmm. developer. And so, but so I can't do anything with the database or I'm a DBA. So I can't do anything with the, you know, the, the, the containers mm-hmm. or whatever. Uh, we are moving to um, gifted generalists yep. that know how to code. They understand, you know, memory management and Linux. They, they understand containers. Yep. It is full stack developers. Yep. And so some are stronger in areas uh, in, in specific areas, others, you know, are, are, are weaker. And that's what makes a great mm-hmm. team, right? You get people with different backgrounds. And so what we see is these DBAs that previously lived in infrastructure and operations. We see that expertise starting to diffuse out to the product teams, not development mm-hmm. teams. They're moving to product teams that, you know, you build it, you mm-hmm. run it but they need database expertise over there. They can't just farm this stuff out. So we need to bring this knowledge that frankly has been trapped on the other side of a, of a ticket mm. system and bring it into our product teams so that our, our companies can write the best software. Um, we, we can't treat data as, as this thing that is, uh, you know, high on the hill, the shiny beacon that only highly skilled trained people can mess with. Uh, um, we used to think that way about websites and we had webmasters. You know, and when's the last time you were at a cocktail party and somebody introduced themselves as, oh, I'm a webmaster. I actually used to do that you know? as a job. So yeah. <laughs> it has oh, been yeah. a long time since I, I've mentioned that. <laughs> oh, yeah. And also build master. Yeah. So we're still going to have database administrators, yeah. but these are going to be folks that um, really understand the ins and outs of um you know, block storage and how Oracle works, how MySQL works, those sorts of things. But we don't need um, someone to review that's external uh, to the development team. We should have that code review process for our Java code, our SQL code, any type of code as part of a peer review process in the product team, in that development Mm. team. And so that's where I see this goes. We're going to have, right now we have uh, system DBAs and application mm-hmm. DBAs. They both live in INO mm-hmm. land. And I, I'm, uh, companies that work with Datacle are starting to shift those resources, those people over to development land, the ones that want to. Uh, the ones that want to stay in INO land, there's certainly a place for them and it's growing, but it's no longer to handle help desk. Yeah, so yeah. That, that's- and, and I guess this feeds into that microservices type infrastructure as well, where in theory, you know, what you use to accomplish an application task will shift and change and is somewhat irrelevant. Um, and yes. allowing this decoupling of systems, but also roles, uh, facilitates that even more. Um, and if you have people who feel like they're just set in I just do this thing, then it doesn't allow for those constant shifts and changes. Yeah. 
Yeah. We need to quit treating software like we're building a physical thing. Yeah. Uh, we need to get away from this assembly line uh, um, idea that, that there is a line that goes from left to right. And we need to start viewing this as an organism mm. that uh, uh, much like, you know, any uh, organism, there are uh, cells that are constantly uh, uh, replenished. Mm. Uh, some faster than others, but the human body doesn't just shut down like, oh, well, I need to make some more red blood cells. Mm. We're going to go into maintenance mode for, you know, <laughs> two hours. You can't do anything. Um, we need to start looking at our systems like mm. that, the, the, the software that we deliver. And uh, for too long, we've looked at it in this linear, um, uh, 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 just, just, we had a very linear approach. We got to go, go from left to right step at, you know, and, and that doesn't work. We need to be able to update one bit of the system and not impact the other folks. And, and that's why microservices, uh, that's why we've seen this explosion recently with cloud native apps, mm-hmm. those sorts mm-hmm. of things, because that's what it provides. It provides the ability to change a bit of software, to improve it without having to get the okay from everybody else. And that's very powerful. And just to, just to reiterate that, that on that cloud native point, I'm guessing um, Datacall also doesn't have any issues with integrating with cloud native databases uh, like, and I'm having a complete blank for a second on the Amazon one. Um, yeah. Aurora, or, or Dynamo. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and yeah. uh, I mean, and uh, Google cloud has one as well. I'm sure Azure mm-hmm. has one. You know, I'm guessing that uh, Datacall also integrates quite well with those, and in fact, possibly even better because you kind of get a, a sort of end-to-end um, s- smoothish chain of transition without having to wait mm-hmm. for new deployments and things like that. They will kind of get deployed in succession. Sure. Well, we we are rolling out our support for uh, document okay. stores All right. like okay. Mongo okay. and Dynamo. Um, at the uh, uh, beginning of okay, next year. Okay, well, that's year. good because we that's focused. something I just sort of uh, was skirting around an assumption without ever actually asking. So it's a good job that that came up. <laughs> so oh, yeah, absolutely. But as far, but as, far as Aurora goes and, and MySQL um, uh, compliant uh, databases or MySQL mm. variants like Maria, those sorts of things, that comes out uh, uh, – uh, uh, after the middle okay. of the year. And, but when I say cloud native, I'm really talking about cloud native applications, sure. like 12 yeah, factor yeah. apps that don't have state, those sorts of things, things that are using Docker containers. Mm. Um, but we primarily see companies using things like Pivotal Cloud mm-hmm. Foundry to build mm-hmm. these. And that's, where they're going. Uh, we have companies that they have purchased Datacle and they're using it for today's legacy apps. But as they replatform to, say, Pivotal, uh, they're also using Datacle to update that database as well because there is still a difference between the rate at which I can update my PCF app and I can update my database. And so no matter how fast you move, with your Pivotal app, you're still constrained by how slow you are with updating the yeah. database. So we need to align those things. 
those two. And, and actually, I mean, I guess some of so you just recently released uh, your 2018 2018 state of database deployments in DevOps survey, and this reiterates a lot of those similar numbers. And the numbers are scarily high, but probably not surprising to anybody. Um, and things like uh, 90% of enterprise application teams face pressure to release more quickly, but at the same time, uh, equally high percentages say that it often uh, database changes slow them down. Um, mm-hmm. Applications, of course, require database changes. Um, and the one that I think I like, or I like in quote marks the most, was the 91% admit to reworking database changes multiple times, which uh, fits very nicely into your um, uh, preview tool that you wouldn't have to do that. Or you, well, you, you would have to do that, but you wouldn't have to actually make the change before doing that. So uh, instead yeah. of, you know, it's like a succession of uh, get uh, fix last commit commits. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I would encourage people to have a look through that as well. Um, I, I think anyone who has been developing for a while um, and has moved maybe into the more NoSQL world, remembers the pains of, of frequent database changes. And if they're still in that world, then at least knows that they want to do something about it. So, so it's, yeah, for it's, sure. But you got to understand that it's also in that NoSQL, big data, semi-structured mm. space as well. And that's why yeah, we're moving sure. into it. Which I'm actually interested. Like, like Cassandra that, yeah. has yeah. schema. No, uh, yeah, yeah. Cassandra yeah. They definitely do, yeah. It's a mm-hmm. little bit of a misnomer when, when they say they're schema, they're not schema-less, they're just schema-flexible. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a different yeah. schema. Uh, uh, that, that obviously came from uh, the marketing department uh, at, at those, those, those data store uh, companies. Yeah, and I have worked for some similar companies before, and yeah, it was always a bit of a... Yeah, misnomer. It's like, oh, you just changed the schema. It won't affect anything. Uh, well, yeah, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just it's it's, um, you know, when they really talk about schema lists, you you can certainly say, well, things like Dynamo and Mongo <clears throat> don't have a schema because it's not shared across all the different. Each each document has its own schema. But if you are going to, let's say you've written code that assumes there is one address per customer, and then somebody in the line of business says, well, we need the ability to have multiple addresses. So instead of one-to-one, it becomes one-to-many. So the way, uh, uh, if you talk to the folks behind those platforms, they will say, oh, well, you just need to make your code backwards compatible. That's a cop-out. Um, and so, you know, the support that, that, you know, what we see people struggling with is they are writing scripts to go through every single one of these documents, these JSON files, and fix them and change them. That is no different than writing a SQL script to go and, and change your structure. It's, it's just worse because it operates on one at a time. Um, and so there needs to be a better solution there. But just because they say it's schema list doesn't mean there's no structure. No, for sure. And, and that structure isn't yeah. going to change. Okay. In the final few minutes we have available, um, any other uh, things, future looking, forward looking um, comments you want to add in about 
databases or, as you mentioned earlier, comics? <laughs> oh, for sure. I, I got to tell you, it is, um, it is really um, – I'm very happy to see what, what I'm turning, terming uh, the geeks want. All right. And so when we yeah, start talking- that, that, that's a whole other big conversation about whether that has entirely been a good idea on current events. But yes, let's leave that one for there for now. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, what I was going to say is that it, no, I mean, I'll, companies- leave, I'll leave my comment there for now. <laughs> Carry on with well, your statement, but it's a big conversation, I think. Oh, for sure. But, but what I would say is that with things like we have realized that DevOps actually improves uh, increases market capitalization. Mm-hmm. It, it uh, companies that are high IT performers outpace uh, S and P five hundred. And there was a bet that Warren Buffett made about ten years ago with a money manager, a, a, a hedge fund manager, that um, the hedge fund manager could beat the S and P five hundred over ten years, mm-hmm. and he mm-hmm. failed. And so he had to donate a million bucks to Warren's favorite charity. Mm. Well, what we've seen is that companies that adopt DevOps that are becoming high IT performers, those companies actually do outperform the S&P 500. So we've actually found a way, and it's the geeks who have found a way to make sure that their company outperforms their peers. And for every C-level exec that is not paying attention to this, they deserve all the bad thing that's bad things that is going to happen to their share price. Um, the ones that buy into this, that let their geeks in their company solve these problems and get out of the way, they will succeed and they will make very nice, uh, uh, get their very nice bonuses out of that. Yeah. And actually this is very interesting. Um, I noticed that I was at mobile Congress earlier in the year uh, and the mobile world, despite well, a lot of the people behind the mobile world are actually fairly old school enterprise companies. And the thing that surprised me most in most of the interviews I did was how companies that I would have never have thought of in a, in a hundred years of talking about things like microservices and containers and decoupled applications and involving developers in decisions were all talking about it. So mm-hmm. it's happening very quickly. Um, which uh, finally, which is which is very interesting, <laughs> and the fact that not only were they talking about it, but they actually seemed to know what they were talking about <laughs> was a yes. very encouraging uh, sign. But anyway, yeah, they're, they're starting to get it, and it's 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 very uh, uh, it's very exciting to see it. It's, yeah. it's finally happening. Yeah. So I guess let's that seems like a, a nice point to uh, to leave that at. Um, just to wrap up, then, what's your what's been your favorite comic of the year so far? <laughs> Man, I, I got to tell you, um, I think um, right now Jonathan Hickman's run on East uh, East of West is okay. phenomenal. Yeah, I have it read a few so of good. those. Yeah, um, I'm trying to find the one that I just read over the weekend that really I loved. I tend to be a little bit behind because I buy most of my comics through uh, bundles, but <laughs> yeah. But I read something over the weekend that was a collection from IDW that was really, really cool. Um, but oh, I can't yeah. remember what it was called. So, <laughs> so we'll, well, any, <laughs> well, with next, I, I guess, uh, you know, I, I don't know when this is going to go live, but, you know, we've got Avengers uh, coming out this uh, weekend. Yeah, and I'm going to go and watch that tomorrow. So. Mm-hmm. Well, that is that's Jonathan Hickman. Uh, ah, so right. he, okay. He, okay. he wrote, uh, you know, kind of the, the the bones of that story is from his Avengers run, uh, which I highly recommend uh, anybody reading. It is just phenomenal. 
It is so good. I am Sean Suchter. I am the co-founder and CTO of Pepperdata. Uh, we are a total performance management company for big data applications and clusters. So by that, we mean that we have a suite of products that provide both a APM application performance management solution and OPM operations performance management. Uh, and our products, since we have data for both of these things, we kind of seamlessly go back and forth between you know APM and OPM, which is really high utility in these big data systems. You know, especially because they're frequently DevOps, and so the constituent cares about both development and operational concerns. So that's what we do. Okay, and we're going to have a little talk specifically about uh, Kubernetes, and I, I can actually see you've got a, a webinar coming up very soon on the 2nd of May called Building a Big Stack on Kubernetes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually interested, so... Kubernetes has a lot of uh, managed hosting options, of course, but a lot of people will also set it up themselves. So um, are you using Kubernetes behind the scenes at Pepperdata, or is this kind of about how to build a stack that incorporates Pepperdata as some sort of external uh, service? Um, we are, so I guess the answer is yes to both. So okay. we are using Kubernetes internally. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, the talk is more about how somebody else uh, might use Kubernetes to do uh, big data work mm-hmm. uh, as an alternative to the traditional big data stack. Okay. So and it's a very... Does that... Does that- complement or compete with what Pepperdata does in some respects? Uh, It's kind of orthogonal because, I mean, our thought is that, and the reason we got involved in Kubernetes is because, you know, we were thinking about, hey, we have a product in this big data on Hadoop space, this Mm -hmm. OP, you know, this this TPM product. but there, that might not be the only game in town in the future, right? There, you know, people might have other ways that they want to do big data, um, other infrastructures that they use. And so we started thinking about it and said, well, Kubernetes is going to be an infrastructure kind of for everything. Mm-hmm. So what about, you know, but it doesn't yet really get used for big data. This is a couple of years ago mm-hmm. that we were thinking about this. Um, and so that led us down the path of, well, if you wanted to just do big data and start from scratch and not have all of the existing infrastructure necessarily, not the standard way of doing it, how would you go about doing that? Mm. And so that led us into the thought, well, you'd, you'd, you'd pick a very modern you know, infrastructure orchestration fabric, right? And, okay, that's Kubernetes. Yeah. You'd pick the most modern compute engine, that's Spark. Yeah. You'd, you know, you'd, you would have to have a storage system, right? Hey, there isn't really anything better than HDFS. So mm-hmm. that part, let's just take from Hadoop. That's really good. And, you know, this was not just our vision. There were other, you know, entities involved as well. And so we were part of the, the group that worked towards making big data work, you know, in a full-fledged, full-power big data stack on Kubernetes. Now, from a Pepper the company perspective, it seems very likely 
that people will at some point want to have OPM solutions for their big data stacks running on Kubernetes. Mm. So I expect at some point we might offer those, but we don't yet because we're still just making sure that running big data on Kubernetes is a super viable thing. And we're, we're right now we're still focusing a little more on that. So you've mentioned a few uh, projects um, that are, are quite common in the big data space, uh, Hadoop and HFS, Spark. Um, when you set up this this webinar, this idea to, to bring people who might need something like this into the uh, into this world, are they coming from worlds where they're using some of those tools already or are they starting from a, a step even before that? Um, I've spoken with people who are both, mm. um, who, you know, I think probably it's more heavily biased towards the ones who are already using some big mm-hmm. data tooling, mm-hmm. um, uh, who, or who are at least familiar. I think the, the other interesting question there is something that you were alluding to a second ago. Are they doing it using a managed service or are they doing it on premise? right behind a firewall and yeah. I think that, that, that's one thing or they might just be using a completely different tool set or Excel spreadsheets. <laughs> right, right. It's well, so the ones who are just using Excel spreadsheets, if it really works in Excel spreadsheets, I guess you're okay. Um, but I mean, that's, that, that scales out pretty quick. Um, yeah, for sure. The, so the interesting, if you're using a managed service, mm. right, if you're using AWS or, or any number of things, you probably have big data processing tools that they'll offer you. And you would have to have a specific reason to want to not use those. Mm. And, and there are good reasons where you might want to just stand up a Kubernetes cluster and then intermix everything in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the case where it really makes a slam dunk is when you're building infrastructure behind a firewall. Mm-hmm. Right or on premise or or something like that, where you're not going to mash together a bunch of different cloud tools and get the kind of lock in that that cloud provider gives you, things like that. If you're gonna make your own, you know, private system, mm-hmm. that's where this Kubernetes solution really shines, both from an efficiency perspective, but also from a DevOps perspective. It's it's a very good solution because you basically can say yeah, I'm just going to take all my resources and throw Kubernetes at them, mm. right? And so now, you know, they're they're just all in one big, you know, Kubernetes cluster, and I can do everything with it. You want me to, you know, do my microservices or my, you know, not-so-microservices? Sure, we can do that. You want me to do my, you know, large-scale, long-term durable storage? Sure, we can do that. You want me to do my, you know, SQL processing and my, you know, streaming and my ad hoc analytics. Sure, we can do that too. And so it's the first time that you can actually, as a DevOps organization or just, you know, or a separate Dev and Ops organization, you can just have one infrastructure that allows you to do it all really well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, historically, there's been a lot of compromise where you had to, you know, do various things very poorly. Uh, and in this case, you don't really have those compromises because, I mean, as evidence, we're talking basically the best of breed tools for doing big data stuff. Mm. Yeah, they just work fine just natively on Kubernetes. 
So you can clearly see that it's not a strong compromise situation. And actually, just to just to check there because it's uh, I, I've I've written and dabbled around this this uh, area, but mostly I guess with um, well, actually I just wrote something recently on hybrid clouds, which tends to be a mixture of all sorts of various sources mm. of information. Um, so I'm guessing there is no real problem um, distributing your Kubernetes cluster behind or parts of it behind and in front of corporate firewalls, um, as long as you yeah. set everything up correctly. <laughs> there is no problem with that, and, and there's actually stuff to help with that even. Okay, yeah. This, uh, what's it called? Uh, cube... Um, oh. Federation? Yeah, cube, cube Fed or something like that, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, it was weird because I was looking into a whole bunch of uh, tools around that space, and a lot of the a lot of them a little bit more user friendly. <laughs> KubeFed is very powerful, but out the box is somewhat uh, hard to get going with. But uh, I guess that provides lots of opportunities for uh, third party uh, providers <laughs> to. Yeah, I mean, I think Kubernetes Federation is is new-ish compared to the rest of Kubernetes. Um, I think that as more people wrap their brains around it, it will probably have the, you know, polish that, Mm -hmm. you know, the rest of the stack is getting. For sure. But it's, from a technical perspective, it's a very powerful underpinning. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's the right base to build on. So why why would uh, someone working with big data need an orchestrator like Kubernetes? What's what's wrong with just having um, a bunch of instances kind of chugging away when you need them, uh, and that's generally fine? Like, why would I need to add in something like an orchestrator into my big data stack? Why is it useful to me? Well, you already have some. You, you probably already have some kind of orchestrator, right? Because the traditional sure. way to do big I'm data asking is a, I'm asking a slightly facetious question. <laughs> yeah. So, so the you know the point is, you, you probably already have something. You have mm-hmm. yarn, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you if your sole job and goal is to do big data, mm-hmm. right, then the advantages of something more general like Kubernetes are limited. They're there, right? Like for long-running services, Kubernetes is really great at that. Yarn is just emerging on that. So if you, you know, if you're running a bunch of Zeppelin notebooks alongside your backend, you know, that's a little more convenient to do with something like Kubernetes. But that's not a major advantage. Mm. I think the major advantage is when you're not just doing big data, and yeah, yeah. this is super important in. Uh, as the organizations grow and get more complex because there's this big disconnect between the parts of an organization who have the capability of doing services Mm. and the parts of the organization that have a capability of doing big data. Mm. Mm. Um, I don't think, did we ever talk about the, the big data Island analogy? I don't think we did. Right. Uh, I can't remember, but I, I, I guess it's okay. somewhat similar so to, is, to silos this, <laughs> in some respects, maybe. No, so okay, so so here's my analogy on this, and, and I think it's it's so if you look at the way you know, I, I was around for the origin of like the Hadoop stack, right? I I was at Yahoo, and I was the first user, 
you know, period. And it was the group two floors down from me who was working on building the software. So, you know, and the interesting, you know, and it had, we had the scale problem. So we had to basically, you know, and all the data warehouses kept trying to pitch us to, you know, hey, we'll, we'll process your data. And like none of them could even come close to our scale. The same thing happened at Google, but they have their own tool set. For sure. But so we had to invent this, this, this tool set, um, Hadoop. And it, it basically is a custom stack of software that you run on a separate, you know, set of hardware that's bought, you know, specially for this purpose. And they've got their own networking setup. And there's like this entire ecosystem from the metal on up is this completely bespoke way of doing things uh, in the sense, bespoke in the sense that it's specifically for big data. And meanwhile, while this is all getting developed, on the other hand, you know, if you look at the people who are doing the actual services, right, there's been all this innovation, right? There's all this innovation in storage and in VMs and in management methodology that's gone on for the rest of IT. Mm. So I kind of say that big data is this, you know, island and the rest of IT is the continent, Right? And most of any given organization is the rest of IT. And then there's this little part of the organization that is using the specialized big data systems. They've got separate administrators. Sometimes they've got separate developers. So it, it's a completely organizationally separate thing between the mainland and this big data island. Um, and for the last, you know, over a decade, they have been completely separated. Where, where never the twain shall meet. Um, and that's very, very limiting. Because if you imagine somebody on the mainland wanting to, you know, oh, I've got just this one little data thing that I need to do, or I want to integrate with the data thing. Now it becomes a cross-organization, cross-functional effort yeah. that is very organizationally hard to do. Mm. And if you compare this to, say, you know, one example is if you look at what goes on in the internals of Google, they don't have that kind of separation, right? Anybody who, you know, like their tools are all completely integrated. There, there is no mainland and island that are so separate. And so, you know, it's much more effective for their organization to do things that, you know, can cross this boundary. That has not been accessible to the rest of the, you know, enterprise world. Until the advent of like this, hey, let's talk about doing, you know, integrating big data and non-big data in the same thing. So now, you know, if you want to run a big data stack on Kubernetes, you're going to be running it on the same hardware. You're going to have the same operators. Yeah. You're going to have the same developer. Yeah. No, so I see. now yeah, suddenly, exactly. yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that that is, it, it's not a little thing actually. It's a really, really organizationally empowering thing mm. at least the, you you may not be able to bring down the the team style divisions at first but by everyone using in quote in quote marks the same infrastructure although of course one of the points of something like kubernetes is the infrastructure is somewhat uh, fluid um it means that at least uh, yeah you have access to the same resources much easier should you want them um yeah yeah. yeah, and it's entirely reasonable as a developer, if I want to make an application that 
you know, blurs, you know, has a part of my application that's doing some service and a part of my application that's, you know, capturing some data and a part of it that's processing some data and doing some machine learning and then going back to some service. I can cohesively make that application. Like mm. one developer or one developer team or whatever can make that whole application, mm. you know, because now the, the infrastructure abstraction is all shared mm. versus before, like that would be a huge cross-cutting organizational endeavor. Mm. So that, that's, that affects the, the fundamental way that organizations can do engineering. And I think that's the really big deal here. And I mean, when it comes to big data, especially, it's very hard to give uh, recommendations on numbers of instances or the configuration of those instances, because especially when you're processing and analyzing data, it's very, very application specific. But what would be sure. what would be some at least uh, common tips or gotchas that you would recommend to people who would like to maybe move into using Kubernetes for the big data stack? Mm. Well, I mean, the, the the right question is just how much... Um, the first question is just how much RAM and storage do you need, mm. right? So figure out the total RAM that you need. And I, and I would definitely suggest that the way people should think about it is figure out the total RAM you need, mm-hmm. right? Don't worry about how it's divided between nodes. Just how much total do you need? Mm. And, you know, then, you know, you can decide, you know, hey, do I, you know, if I need 100 gigs, do I get, you know, do I get four machines at 25 gigs? I mean, I know there'll be powers of two. I'm just making it easier for us humans. You know, do I get four machines at 25 gigs or 10 machines at 10 gigs? It doesn't really matter all that much, right? If it's all the same, get a slightly larger machine, I guess, because you'll have less machines to manage. Mm. Um, but that's a pretty minor point, especially if you know you're using a cloud infrastructure. You don't really care the you know, the machines will just exist. Um, so I would definitely encourage everybody to work in totals. And a lot of people aren't used to doing that. They're they're I need this many nodes of this classification. Um, and total RAM is super important. Total storage is kind of important, right? You you know you need to have more than more than you need mm. for sure. Um, CPU is a pretty compressible resource, mm. Mm. so you could use more or less of that depending on how fast or slow you you care about things going. Um, and the nice thing about Kubernetes, of course, is that it'll do a really good job of you know scaling up and scaling down your usage of things like CPU. Uh, so that's a pretty flexible thing for you. You don't have to get that exactly right um, yeah, yeah. the way that you had to before. And because and, I, I had some experience with before Kubernetes with Apache Mesos, and that had this concept of letting you kind of program against your entire uh data centers as one and not have to think about individual memory or CPU at each instance. And does, does yeah. Kubernetes let you do something similar or is it slightly different? Extremely similar. Yeah. Okay. P- two P's in a pod there. So uh, I guess uh, this is a big topic in itself and there's many, many resources out there on um, setting up Kubernetes clusters uh, and it's a very popular subject right now. But 
just coming back to Pepper Data for a minute, um, I can't remember exactly when we last spoke, a few months ago at least. Um, what's, mm-hmm. what, what have you been up to as a company uh, recently and what's on the roadmap for the next few months? Well, our, our, um, we've had so much traction on our uh, increasing our APM footprint. So we've been working on, you know, we started the company with an OPM footprint. And a couple of years ago, we introduced our first suite of, of APM tools. And that's gone incredibly well for us in the market. Uh, we've had so much uh, adoption and increased demand for our APM uh, tool chain that we're going to be, you know, pouring more fuel on that fire. Um, so we're doing a lot of things with going very deeply into uh, Spark applications, uh, Hive applications, SQL-based applications to provide very clear, uh, you know, recommendations to say, you know, hey, your application isn't working right in this way. Do this specific thing to make it work better, right? This error happened. This is why that obscure exception happened. This is the root cause. Fix this. So that kind of thing is a big focus for us in the next uh, several months. Um, that's kind of, you know, not really Kubernetes or not specific. That's just, you know, oh, as sure. a, at a high level, that's where the main focus is because we just had so much um, success with our current offering. And it makes us, you know, feel like, hey, well, let's do more of that. Um, the uh, in, in the... You know, in the Kubernetes front specifically, I could also mention, you know, I'm really excited that uh, we've got, you know, like a bunch of really robust features. You know, Spark, the Spark Kubernetes support has just been incorporated into the upstream Spark engine. Um, so the, the latest Spark release, 2.3, is, of you know, Kubernetes native support was one of the highlighted, highlighted features. Um HDFS, we've you know gotten full Kerberos support and full HA support, uh, and I expect we'll probably have an alpha release of the native HDFS on Kubernetes soon. So those are both pretty exciting things. So definitely making sure you you can be part of uh, that Kubernetes future when you're ready. <laughs> And uh, just one final question. In, in this space generally, I mean, obviously, Kubernetes orchestration, um, yeah, a whole bunch of other buzzwords, uh, uh, cloud native, microservices, et cetera, the kind of current trend in, in big data processing especially. But do you see anything coming down the line in the next year or so that's the next trends that uh, you, you think people should be aware of? Well, so there's something interesting that's that's the pieces are coming together, but I don't think I've seen a lot of, you know, full uh, realizations of all the separate pieces as they come together. So I talked about Spark and HDFS, right? Those are interesting pieces. But there's also native Kubernetes support for Airflow now. So Airflow is a very popular uh, workflow scheduler that allows you to do very complex uh, enterprise workflows, and that can work. You know, use Kubernetes natively as its you know orchestration environment. Also, uh, machine learning and and TensorFlow 
are, of course, work very well on Kubernetes. And if you put all of these things together, right, you suddenly get the ability to describe, you know, completely programmatically. So you can actually make an application that does, you know, big data storage, processing, analytics, machine learning, you know, every every buzzword you want, right, and the microservices, you can actually describe and make a complete application programmatically. And so there's two things that I think that that's going to make interesting. One, organizations for themselves writing their applications that way, instead of thinking of them as piecemeal things, think of them as the entire app. That's kind of interesting. The other thing that I think will emerge, I don't know when, but I think it will, is you know, is companies making packaged products that are like this, right? Here's the entire, you know, suite. Just give me a Kubernetes cluster, and it, it wraps all these things together and does some application that uses all these buzzwords. And suddenly, instead of the attempt to install those applications being an army of consultants and a, and a super complex heavyweight thing. It's just like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me where the Kubernetes API server is. You're done. Mm, mm, mm. Right? And it's like, it's an app store ease for enterprise complex apps. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's a game changer. And I like the idea of being able to describe everything as, as code, you know, infrastructure as code, et cetera, et cetera. The ability to version control and track changes between just about everything is is a powerful uh, ability to have as well. So I, I definitely think that, um, yeah, I, I think that'll be a real thing. We'll, we'll and the you know everything as code, you know, source control things, you know, the entire the entire thing, and much less uh, tribal wisdom and organizational you know state. I think that'll be a real thing we see. So that's you know that's kind of exciting. And that was my two interviews with Robert Reeves of Datacore and Sean Zuchter of Pepperdata. If you enjoyed the show, you can find previous episodes at gregarismammal.com slash podcast, and you can support the show at gregarismammal.com slash support. Also find us on Facebook, look for Gregarious Mammal, and you can find me on Twitter at Chris Chinch. Talk to you next time.